Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox. Today, we'll meet Professor Stephen Days in Ottawa, who says Canadian universities need to spend more time on entrepreneurial learning. Former elected band counselor and chairman of Blackfish Enterprises, Chris Sankey tells us why he thinks those who support protests and blockades are doing a disservice to Indigenous people. And producer Scotty Aceman joins us with details about the comedy festival and competition now underway downtown. So, let's get started. Entrepreneurship learning. All university students can benefit. This is the title of an article that caught our attention this week at theconversation.com. It's written by our first guest. Stephen Days joins us from the University of Ottawa, where he is the boss at the Telfer School of Management, as well as being entrepreneur in residence and visiting professor. Professor Days, Stephen, good morning, sir. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me well, on. It's good to have you with us. Talk to us a little bit about what entrepreneurship learning means and how it can be applied to all the faculties and all the schools in the country. First of all, what is entrepreneurship learning? Yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting topic, obviously, for me. Um, you know, when you, when you look at classic definitions of entrepreneurship, um, you, 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 you find things like um, people having to create value in uncertain times with limited resources. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't just necessarily translate to people who are starting businesses. Every one of our graduates is going to be experiencing those conditions. They're going to be graduating into uncertain times, especially now. They're going to have limited resources in the jobs that they go into. And they're going to need to create value in those jobs. And so for me, entrepreneurship isn't just about chasing or promoting startups. It's about creating a mindset and a skill set in all of our graduates. Interesting stuff. And so this typically, though, would be something in terms of the sort of model that you're talking about. This would be something that could be found in in faculties of commerce and business administration and management. There are entrepreneurship learning courses on most Canadian campuses, but in in many cases, though, Stephen, quite limited to the business-related faculties. You're suggesting that this these principles should apply across all faculties. Yeah, absolutely. And in, and in fact, there's, there's good research done that when you look at the uh, academic backgrounds of a lot of entrepreneurs or many entrepreneurs, you'll see that they're not just graduating from business school. Right. And a study that I did with the team at the Telfer School of Management over the summer indicated that we're actually doing a really good job in Canadian universities of teaching entrepreneurship across all faculties. And in fact, we found about 20, on average, 22 entrepreneurship courses being taught in at least three or four different faculties in every institution. And I'm quoting now from your article again, Stephen, doing so in terms of creating these uh, uh, this environment of entrepreneurial learning will ensure our next generations are able to meet the challenges of tomorrow. And you go on to say this has never been truer than now as we navigate the effects of COVID-19. How the pandemic will interact with the changing landscape of work remains to be seen. It is very much a work in progress. But I must say, and I'm for your comment, 
comment, please. Uh, millions of us, Stephen, out of necessity, have been forced to become entrepreneurs to one degree or another, even if it means just readjusting to working from home. In many cases, the job evaporated, and we found other ways to find a cash. Short of CERB and, and government programs, some of us have gone out and just found other work. That's the entrepreneurial spirit, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And when you break down the skills of entrepreneurship, you know, it looks like things like you've mentioned, uh, problem solving, creativity, um, you know, leadership, pursuing opportunity, being tenacious. Um, these are all skills that everybody should have, not just those individuals with a an aspiration of starting a business. Well, it's important to point that out, too, because, you know, there are those in the humanities, for example, very interested in in, in those subjects in that area. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, with an entrepreneurial uh, twist to that plot at all, is there? Uh, especially when they talk about social entrepreneurship. Explain that, too, Stephen, please. Yeah, yeah. so this is, a, this, is a, this is a fascinating area where... We're seeing students every year, more and more students every year coming in interested in, you know, starting a business, but more importantly, solving a problem by starting that business. Right, yeah. Social entrepreneurship is really about creating value, um, solving a problem in society, um, and doing so using the power of business and the power of entrepreneurship and the power of markets to do so. And so social entrepreneurship is a really interesting field that we're starting to see pop up and emerge um, all over the all over the country, um, and and so it's interesting because it, we're we're not only just responding to the interests of students who have this 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 different mindset about solving problems sure. in society, but but they're also interested, like I said, in using the power of of business and markets in order to do so. But for some, it's a difficult bridge to cross, isn't it, Stephen? Because there, there's, this, there's this sort of moral speed bump of profiting uh, from social uh, injustice or inequality. And yet, you know, that's, that's easily, I think, dealt with by, by coming up with, a, with an effective entrepreneurial solution type project, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it really is, it's really about your business model. And we've got to do, you know, we've got to do some um, some damage control, I think, in the word entrepreneurship and, 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 you know, startups in general, because we kind of immediately think about people who are, you know, profiting and, and maybe aren't as, 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 as good to society or as good to environment as they should be. Right. So it's a bit of a, a bad connotation. But the reality is, you know, you, you, what you do with those profits or how you operate your business is entirely up to you. You have control as the entrepreneur. And I used to run a, a not-for-profit in the area of, of working with entrepreneurs. Um, and my, one of my main jobs was to, to generate revenue so that I could turn the lights on tomorrow and pay my employees tomorrow. And mm-hmm. people, would give me a hard, people would give me a hard time about that. And I would always tell them, I am a not-for-profit, but I'm also not for loss, right? I need, still need to make enough money to be able to come back and do the good things that I did yesterday tomorrow and next week and next year. It's interesting. You know, some faculties, uh, for example, engineering and medicine and so on, very focused faculties have decided over time, Stephen, to to sort of broaden the knowledge base of students in those programs and added compulsory, take, an, take a language course, take a literature course, etc. So with that in mind, with the, the, with the recognition that uh, faculty directors understand the need for a broader knowledge base for their graduates, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial learning would be highly beneficial in almost all of those situations, wouldn't it, as an add-on? 
Yep, absolutely. And, and again, it's not just about the pursuit of startups. It's about a mindset and a skill set that every student can benefit from. So then uh, you talked about a study that you and your team at uh, the University of Ottawa's uh, Telfer School of Management conducted just a few months ago and were somewhat pleasantly surprised by the fact there was more activity vis-a-vis entrepreneurial learning than perhaps you expected. So with that in mind, how close are we to what you would see as your objective uh, uh, nationwide? Yeah, I don't know that I've decided what I think the optimum is, but I think we're doing a pretty good job and some institutions are doing a really good job. And, you know, before I came on the show, I took a look at SFU and UBC and mm-hmm. they're actually doing a really good job in terms of in terms of these sorts of things. And so, you know, they're, they're a good standard to look at. Uh, but there are other schools across Canada that are doing a really good job as well. And, and we just need to recognize that it's not, you know, it's not just about courses. There are also things that can happen outside of the classroom to encourage and promote that, that learning and that skill set. So we looked at experiential um, opportunities for students to learn and kind of practice entrepreneurship in a safe mm-hmm. environment and learn from others. And then we also looked at the support that's available to entrepreneurs in schools. And so more and more students every year are actually starting businesses while they're in their academic studies or coming into their academic right. studies with an existing startup. And so more and more schools are, are actually you know, providing those sorts of sports. And so we look at those three things, courses, experiential opportunities, and then uh, support to actual startups. And I'm delighted to find that uh, Simon Fraser and UBC are very high on the rankings of the day's O-meter when it comes to entrepreneurship learning, Stephen. That's very reassuring. Thank you for joining us this morning, sir. It's a pleasure to speak to you and a very important topic for us all to consider. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Here's a quote from just a scorcher of an article in the National Post uh, written by our next guest. The media loves to showcase protests and give platforms to activists who claim to be supporting the Wet'suwet'en people by shutting down government buildings and blocking railroads and highways. This is not reconciliation. In fact, It's doing significant harm to Indigenous people. This part of an article entitled, Those Who Support Protests and Blockades Are Doing a Disservice to Indigenous People, written by Chris Sankey, who has been a guest on our program before, joining us from Prince Rupert and the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's back with us again this morning. Chris, good to have you back. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you back with us. It was a great article in the paper, Chris, and you and I have talked on this program about that very thing in the past. Uh, the, but let's go specifically uh, to the, the notion of, of, of the protest, because uh, the next day after your article was published uh, in the National Post, the same paper published another article about uh, MPs in the House of Commons signing a petition criticizing the B.C. government and the RCMP over the ways in which they've been handling these protesters, these land defenders. They've been rough and pushy and everything, Chris, and that's just not on. So somewhere in the middle of all that is the people of Canada going, what the heck's going on here? Well, look, first of all, I, I'm not wet so wet and I, I, in our culture, it's, it's disrespectful to speak into other people's nation or tribe or house groups. Fair enough. And and secondly, um, uh, with regards to how the police handled that stuff, um, what do you do? Because uh, what has happened, and obviously it's 
it's all over social media. But what what is what happens is these these camps get these reporters that are in are, are basically living at these protest camps, and every day, all day, they're posting on social media. They're getting into CBC um, nightly news, and they're posting one side of the argument. Right. And and that's all British Columbians and Canadians see. But what they don't see is the hundreds, tens of millions of dollars, the uh, GoFundMe accounts that are going to specific individuals within these camps. These, that money does not go into the to to fight or combat poverty. Um, you know, help help create dialogue to get to the heart of the issue, sit down face to face, and resolve these things internally. What they've done and what they do everywhere, these, these agenda-driven activists, is they play on the hearts and minds and pull the heartstrings of British Columbians and Canadians. Right. And they use Indigenous culture as a weapon to, to, to raise capital, to raise money, to continue fighting their, their agenda, which is to stop Canada's responsible resource development. Right. Then what they do is what they, they team up with a select few with, within our nations. And they, they they keep pumping out these social media messages to, to British Columbians and Canadians, um, saying that we're all against uh, these protests. Right. We want to protest all these pipelines, which is simply not true. But they do it everywhere. They're coming in from the United States. They're coming in from the, uh, overseas. And they, what they also do is they call upon other individuals and they call themselves warriors they come in from back east and from the lower 48 and those individuals are causing or are doing violent acts and threats and so in one respect what do you do as an rcmp person a, a, a department that is there to protect the rights and to protect our safety day in and day out when these individuals are all over social media uh, you know they're 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 charging towards RCMP on these videos, mm-hmm. chanting and screaming away, and it just it's absolutely for us. It's saddening. It's disrespectful. It's angering. It's frustrating that the media does not catch on that almost the majority of these people that are that are camping out within our territories they are not from here. Right. They are not from that nation. They are either a non-indigenous. Or B, they are from other other nations across the country or right. in the United States. Now, that said, whatever disputes that are taking place within that nation, and I hope for a peaceful resolution for the Wet'suwet'en, as the same with Apache, I really hope that the neighboring nations um, could let that community heal, let them solve their differences internally, and I hope that they come together and find a path forward for the sake of their own people, not just for the sake of their own people, but for the next generations to come. Right. Just one quick technical point, because uh, you were talking about, you know, the dispute involving hereditary chiefs versus elected chiefs and so on. Uh, you are, and it's important just to point this out from, from the, for our listeners, Chris, so they understand where you're coming from on this. You are a former elected representative for a, a First Nation, are you not? Yes, that is correct. I'm also uh, in line for a house name in, in our culture, and uh, it's the uh, House of Wadzim, which is which is a person that enters quietly. When my uh, my uncle was passing, I asked him if he was sure he wanted to pass me that name, 
And uh, but look, at the end of the day, um, we all belong to our hereditary system, right? And we all want to work with our hereditary system, and and it's happening within my community. The elected body is meeting with the hereditary. Uh, they're trying to do that on a regular basis. It's not an easy process. Um, there'll be difficult discussions. There'll be disputes. There'll be anger. There'll be frustration. That needs to stay internally. Right. And, and I, it's not, you know. I, I think that what is confusing, perplexing for many, Chris, is the, is the dynamic, the political dynamic at play that, again, is, is, is understood by few. But most of us at least are aware of the fact that there is a push and pull going on between a group of hereditary chiefs and the elected representatives of the band who claim to, by the way, represent the majority. This is not your uh, nation. You're not uh, going to speak to it specifically, but you can understand, especially from the, the those outside observers trying to get a handle on what on earth this is about, it's very confusing. Oh, it is, and it's complex. That's why I always tell people just you know listen and learn. Don't interfere. <clears throat> Look, um, there's this big dispute about uh, where our boundaries are, are are met when it comes to being elected individual for your nation. Mm-hmm. There's the argument that well, you stay on the reserve, but anything outside of that belongs to hereditary. So. Here's how this works. Nobody disputes the fact that the name that each of us inherit, which is passed down for generations for the last 10,000 years, it's the name that belongs to the territory, not the individual. So in my case, when I strengthen my name, when I, I, I have a feast, it's called a soup feast, or you, you, you put together a feast in front of the entire community so people could bear witness to what's happening. So the next generation passes that on verbally. There's no written history. It's all oral and right. culture. And so what happens um, with that whole process is that the name continues on next generation, next generation. Now, people want to dispute the elected body. And you, you see these young university students at the University of Ubik and elsewhere, you know, they're, they're, they're repeating what they're hearing. And then, so what happens is when you're elected body, the the territories that are that belong to our nation. It's not the individuals. It belongs to the tribal nation right. and the community as a collective. So the, the elected body holds those lands and title in trust for our people, and it's there to protect the people so that individuals can't go out and sell it or they can't be going off and trying to sell it privately or benefit individually. That's how it works in our culture. Mm-hmm. You can't do that, you know. And then when you are a, a, a hereditary chief, the chief in our culture does not speak. We have a thing called a galimai, which means it's like the speaker of the house. It's like a speaker who speaks on behalf of the hereditary chief. And But they, what they do, though, is they collaborate and talk about what their issues are, what the, the successes they want to see for their tribe, anything they got to deal with internally in their house. That's all up to that specific tribe. Right, so we have four crests in our tribe. We have a killer whale, a raven, a eagle, and a wolf. In our language, a wolf is called a lakibu, a eagle is called a laskig, a raven is called a gunhara, and then a killer whale is called uh, 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 sorry, um, kisvetwara. And so those each individuals, those are four tribes within the nine allied tribes, and and that's just how it works. Mm-hmm. It, 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 what's happening is that these activism, the activism, the gender-driven activism, has t- 
taken that knowledge and that culture and they've they've torn apart our communities and they, they keep attacking our elected body saying they have no jurisdiction outside the reservation. That is simply not true. Yeah, and Chris, when we see, uh, for example, in Ontario, as we did last year, when a, a group of sympathizers, allies, they called themselves, of the British Columbia land defenders, put a blockade on a national railway line with complete with flaming ties and all the rest of it, I mean, how helpful is that to the people up in the woods in northern B.C.? None. It doesn't help anybody. So here's what happens. So they have these activists that are camping out in these protest camps. And what they do is they coordinate with individuals from the universities, people that are helping these students protest. That's why they are so quick to respond to locking down government buildings. And what they do is they single out each government department. And what they, they, they circulate documents, they talk about, okay, who can we get? Okay, John Doe, you're going to go there with 10 or 12 or 15 people. You're going to block the uh, health department of the government. Okay, um, Billy, you're going to go over here. You're going to take a 15. And what they do is they map out each uh, orchestrated lockdown, as they want to call it, uh, in, in, in standing in solidarity with Sudan. Right. That is not helping us. And here's why. One, it's hard enough, uh, the struggles in our communities are difficult enough when you don't have proper resources to, to look after our people. People don't understand that when that money is being transferred from, first of all, the federal government, but it's not coming from the taxpayer. It, it was monies that were, were supposed to be, that were negotiated, being held in trust that, that is supposed to go back to the communities if or should a community want to go through a treaty process or a reconciliation process. But it doesn't, it's not enough. Our, our people are constantly struggling to mm-hmm. make ends meet. And then what happens when you're in an elected position, it, you have to take different pots of money from different departments that you're trying to govern in order to make budgets work because it just insuffice in terms of how we try to budget each department so our community could function from infrastructure to health to education just taking care of our elders. It, it's, it is so complex and it's so difficult. And then you got to go through the bureaucracy. And then the federal government has this application you fill out. And in this agreement, which is still this 160-year-old INAC agreement, in there it tells you how to spend the money. And it, it's just ludicrous that we are still governed by a 660-plus-year-old Bible uh, under the INAC system. And so in one respect, I could understand why our people want to include hereditary. And it's the rightful thing to do because we were a hereditary system. Mm -hmm. We do follow a matrilineal system, which is our grandmother. And that's how this all works, right? But these activists have taken that and they they have divided our people, people that I've known all of my life. uh, They don't talk to me. Um, They'll say hi and, and, and... walk on by some are now coming around talking to me and this was before anything got heated mm-hmm. because i was pro responsible resource development they felt i was they called me a sellout i had prank phone calls fake email accounts out of rock thrown at my house my children were condemned on social media mm-hmm. i was being condemned and it was all because of the infiltration of this activism that got into our communities, just only telling one side of the story that somehow we're like, we're just an arm of the federal government. We don't care about our people. I'll tell you right now for the amount of money that the elected body gets paid is not nearly 
the the cost of the stress that is put on to those individuals that, by the way, are democratically elected sure. in, yeah. to help our people. Yeah. Now, we're not perfect. No, we know that. We know 110% it was a system that was thrown at us by the federal government called the Indian Act. We get all of that. We, I mean, we're living and breathing, for God's sakes. I mean, that's the... That's one of the things we wish and we hope that at some point we're going to be able to get away. Sterling Fox with you, joined from Prince Rupert, rather, by Chris Sankey, chairman of Blackfish Enterprises, a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Here's a, a quote from an article he wrote just the other day in the National Post. We're not invited to the table in the past. We fought for over 160 years to take back that seat. And now we're pushing for equity ownership in the projects that extract resources from or run through our territory. Yet the protesters threaten to take all of that away. They're hindering our ability to move our communities out of poverty. Chris, if it's that black and white, plain as the nose on your face for you, why can't the protesters see it? Well, they don't. They don't want to see it. They're they're listening to a select few uh, within within their groups. And they're just not listening. They they don't care what what is said. So as long as they get their message out first, uh, it doesn't matter if it's the truth. As long as it gets out there first, you say it enough times, people are going to believe it. Do you think you've talked about how the, 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 the people of British Columbia and the people of Canada, how they feel about this situation uh, up north because of the messaging? Do you think people here in British Columbia, Chris, are any better educated or aware of what's going on? Or are we all pretty much in the same boat when it comes to this uh, confrontation? It's only in the last, uh, I say, last month or so where um, British Columbians have actually called me up and people are reaching out to me and saying they didn't weren't aware of how this is all functioning. I am hopeful that British Columbians and Canadians will start to realize what's actually taking place because the majority of these individuals that come in and start these protests are not from the community, <clears throat> and they're fully funded. And some some people are living a very lavish lifestyle off the backs of Indigenous communities, and that's wrong. If we really and truly cared about our people, if we really wanted to get our people out of poverty. Those protests would respectfully leave our territories, leave our challenges and problems onto our own, and let us uh, come together in peace and harmony and bring our communities forward, not backwards. This is bringing us backwards. So what's... Go ahead. So what's the agenda, Chris? Why such a deliberate attempt, an organized, in some ways, obviously well-funded attempt to move the process backwards? What's the agenda? Well, they want to block Canada's responsible resource development. And secondly, they want to get some cash out of the government. They want to get people funding them. Do it by all means necessary, stop the project. Now, there are people out there within our nations that truly do care about the environment. I'm not disputing that. Right. If you have, I mean, if you have that dispute, then you solve that within your community. Don't be hiring guns to come out and try block because what it's done is created violence. There's bullying, there's intimidation. Sure. And these are all tactics brought by those non-Indigenous individuals and in teaching them how to protest. So not helpful in the least. Not one bit in the least. It's dividing families, friendships, and communities. It's done significant harm. Um, some, some of our nations may never heal because of it. And, it's, and as they do, it's going to take a while. Um, it's intergener- if what's happening all over again, it's intergenerational trauma. We right. just discovered all these unmarked graves. We just are now trying to come out of suppression. 
And what these roadblocks are doing, what these protesters are doing, is bringing us right back there. They never see that side of the damage they are doing. All they're seeing is they're seeing victory. Look, the nations uh, want it, and that is not true. That is by far this the truth. Because I know, in, in speaking with our people, they want responsible resource development. Nobody wants to wake up in the morning and destroy the environment on, on behalf of development. Absolutely. I've never met one person who would, would ever do something that stupid. Right. And, you know, we've been stewards of the land for the last 10,000 years. And it's only now that our traditional knowledge is being in the, entered into the equation of negotiations where we could start to make sure that our, there are protected areas with our nation that are going to remain that way for future generations to come. However, we need to develop an economy. All right, Chris, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. I very much enjoy these adult conversations based in reality. Thanks very much. We'll do this again. Thank you, and together we're stronger. And welcome to the Arts Corner. It's Sterling Fox, joined on the line by Scotty Aceman, who is one of the two guys behind something called Rise of the Comics, uh, the sponsors of a comedy contest going on. It just kicked off a couple of days ago. Scotty, good morning and welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Now, the venue for these comedy events, first of all, we need to tell folks that they happen every Wednesday night, and it's at the Roxy on Granville Street, right? Yes, sir. It is at the iconic Roxy Cabaret, and uh, the backstory with that is we've lost Yuck Yucks, the comedy mix, Kino, and we're celebrating our fifth year of doing live shows and somebody had to do a tournament, uh, and it's been embraced. It's been a really great start last Wednesday, yes. Okay, so Wednesday night was round one of four. And so what's the format? You How, how many comedians or uh, would-be comedians appear per evening in this kind of well, a playdown? Well, we, we had nearly 100 applicants. That's how exciting it was. Great. 12 comedians, 12 amazing comedians, all four preliminary nights, and only the top three get through. And what makes this really interactive and cool is that the audience gets a voting card and they get to vote through the top three of each night. It's ah, great. Okay, so the lineup each night is, did you say there are 12 per evening, three of whom will advance? Yes, sir. Aha! So not only do you get to have a few chuckles, you also get to, well, vote and, and have some input into who, who moves on. That is what makes it so cool. And while the votes are being tabulated, we have a major headliner performing for 15 minutes. Uh, so it's a very exciting night. And uh, it's been embraced very well so far. Very well. Well, we should tell uh, folks that you are uh, one of the people behind uh, uh, Vancouver comedian Ivan Decker, for example. You introduced me to Ivan a couple of years ago, and he's gone on to great things on national late-night TV in the States and so on. So Vancouver has a wonderful, long, proud comedy history. And all this is just doing is, is A, keeping that uh, in front of us, Scotty, and looking for, well, shall we say, new talent to keep that history alive. Absolutely. Ivan Decker has been a trailblazer for all these people. Uh, he's won the Juno, as you know, and as you said, he's gone on to so many great things. And the pro-ams that are on our shows are all very high level. Some of them have recording albums, and they aspire to be as good as our friend Ivan. And uh, the level has been so good. So, uh, yeah, I mean, 
guys like Ivan have made this available for these comics to keep it going. Absolutely. And of course, you must take a moment and uh, tip of the hat to uh, veterans. Uh, we just lost them a couple of weeks ago. People like Rich Elwood, who founded Punchlines yeah. way back in the day, who created the basis for this this uh, comedy phenomenon out of Vancouver that continues to build. So now let's go to the Roxy for a second, Scotty. The first night of four was this past Wednesday. When a person wants to go, do you have to do as you would for any many other uh, venues? Do you have to book online in advance, or can you just walk up and go find yourself a seat? Well, that's a great question. Uh, there are walk-up tickets. Uh, tickets are $20 at the door, but we have tickets in advance for $15 at riseofthecomics.com. And it's a good idea to book because we did sell out Wednesday. And this upcoming Wednesday, uh, I think we're at about 60% already. So riseofthecomics.com. And the dates are clearly labeled, and we hope, uh, you know, we're getting large differences in age demographics. Great. People are loving comedy, and the Roxy uh, Sterling is set up beautifully for comedy. I, I'm very impressed by how they're setting up there. It's really cool. Well, you know, you said you had this is the fifth year for Rise of the Comics and, and the big uh, competition. Of course, last year it was all Zoomified, wasn't it? It was all, uh, it was all remote. Nobody could uh, have a drink and applaud and giggle and heckle. There was none of that going on. So it's much more normal this year, isn't it? it is, yeah, it's much more normal. Uh, it was very awkward last year doing uh, Zoom shows, but uh, when things opened up, it was May 25th this year. We started doing backyard shows. And people, you know, when you're doing conversation comedy with your friends, that's great. But to sit back, have a drink, and get those chuckles, as you say, yeah. with someone else doing the entertaining, that is a whole different level. And this is a high-level tournament. Uh, so uh, it, it's just, it's really, really great. I'm so happy about it. So, okay, we've got three, we've got four Wednesday nights with a dozen comics each night. Of that Correct. dozen, three will be selected to go forward. So I'm assuming after the four initial Wednesday nights, there are going to be more Wednesdays, Scotty, in which uh, uh, even further playdowns take place. Take us to there. You're reading my mind. Yeah, there are two semifinals in early February where there will be six comics times two shows. So we're going to whittle down from 48 comics down to 12. And right now, the comics that are on these preliminary shows are doing their tightest five-minute sets. It's fast action, great pace. And when we get to the semis in February, 10-minute sets. And it's a whole new level. We're going to have professional judges. But right now... Uh, it's just so much fun to watch the audience get so involved sure. and do their top three. And uh, it's it's just been a key format and a very exciting stuff, for sure. So besides uh, bragging rights, which, of course, are terribly, terribly important, yeah. uh, are there any other enticements for the winner? Is there a, a prize of some kind? Yes, there are. And, uh, man, you've got all the right questions. Uh, first prize for the preliminaries. There's a special gift card, but the bigger stuff that I believe you're leading up to is we have committed to $4,000 in a total prize money purse, which nobody else is doing, only through Rise of the Comic. Right. And the winner is taking half that. So the winner, which will be on the final night later in February, will receive two 
$1,000 and a chance to feature at one of our upcoming shows. Fantastic. So, uh, again, there's not that you're going to need. Again, people have been cooped up for a good long time. You give right. a comedian a chance to go perform in front of real live people. You're not. There's not a lot of arm twisting involved to get those performers out there. If anything, uh, I'm, I'm struck, Scotty, by the number of people that wanted to give it a whirl in the first place. You said you had over 100 applications. Yeah, we, we did. We had nearly 100. It could have been a little over 100 and only 48 could get in and because there's only four preliminary rounds and that many comedians here uh, it, there were just so many high level comedians that wanted a shot at this because they relied on the rise of the comics brand and we are delivering uh, me and my co-producer uh, Kyle Berger we are working our tails off to ensure that we've got an amazing comedy crowd every week and the Roxy has delivered in terms of venues so it's been a really good marriage so far. So, and uh, I guess from the point of view, I have to ask you about this, and only got a couple of seconds. For those who might be a little nervous, a little antsy about going downtown to Granville after dark, and, you know, it's, uh, what's it like these days? Well, I have to tell you, I'm one of those people. Okay. But ironically enough, there are no problems. I mean, you, there's nothing to worry about. And if you are, you know, just take an Uber. You'll get dropped off right in front. Uh, but you know what? I drove, I parked. It's really not as bad as people think sure. because the heavy action starts later at night. That's when the partiers go out. But our shows start at 730, which is a great night for, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm 58. I'm part of the older crowd. The property <laughs> that's pretty old. So I like the early show. It's very safe. And uh, I'm I'm really impressed by the whole scenario. So we hope people will go to riseofthecomics.com and get some tickets and have a great night. Sounds like a lot of fun. Rise of the Comics, all one word, friends. Riseofthecomics.com for cheaper tickets to a good fun night at the Roxy on a bunch of Wednesdays ahead. Scotty Aceman, we wish you nothing but success. Enjoy the, the contest. Sterling, love your show. It was an honor to be on. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.